right, go ahead and open up uh, to Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8. Uh, we're going to try and get through paragraphs 4, 5, and 6 tonight. So we'll see what happens. All right, uh, so last week we cut off about halfway through uh, paragraph 4. If you're using the, the hymnal, I don't know what page it's on, 920-something. Um, and if you're using the, uh, the, the youth room Bible, it's, uh, 1313 is paragraph four. And then it goes over to the next page for most of it. Um, so we're about, we finished about halfway through paragraph four, uh, last week. And I have confidence that we can actually get through it this week. Let me just start with a couple of quick reviews. Who can tell me, and we talked about this last week for a bit. We're taking an inordinately long amount of time with chapter eight. Like, we will go through other chapters quicker than this. Why are we spending so much time devoting so much time to chapter 8? Francis. Because Christ is the only restoration we have towards God, and he's the only way to eternal life. That's exactly right, because Jesus is the only way to eternal life. The most important thing about you is what you think about the Lord Jesus. What you believe about the Lord Jesus. That is the dividing line between heaven and hell for eternity. Are we trusting the Lord Jesus? Now there is eternal life in knowing Jesus personally. And it is my confident hope that, that most of you in this room have that saving relationship right now with him personally. <coughs> but Jesus did not only come to give you eternal life by one time or another professing faith in his name, but he came to give you life and life abundantly, he says in John 10, 10. And so the way to abundant life is the same way that life begins. It's by growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, the, the better you know the Lord, the more uh, accurately you know him, the more your Bible will make sense to you. The more the necessity of that relationship will make sense to you. The more you'll press in and, and plug in. I know far more about Mrs. Early today than I did the day that I met her. I know far more about most of you today than I did the day that I met you because as you grow in a relationship with somebody, you grow to know them. You grow to know things about them. And we want to do that with the Lord Jesus. Now, one other just bit of review. We've been focusing, or we spent some time last week on what I called uh, Christological grammar, which is a scary sounding term but as we said last week, it's as easy as counting to four, okay? So don't be overwhelmed <laughs> with that. There is one person of the mediator. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. One person. One helpful way to think about this is in the same way that there is, how many gods are there? One, one, one God. And how many persons are there in the Godhead? Three. And what are they? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, very good. You all have been catechized. All right, so the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. So... One God, three persons, all distinct from one another. In the same way, there is one person of the Son of God. 
And that one person has two natures. And what are they? God and man. Truly God, truly man. Why are each one of those necessary? Why is it necessary that Jesus be truly man? Ms. Berenger. Because only man can pay the debt for man's sin. Amen. And uh, Mr. Van Dudeward, you volunteered for the other one, but I'm going to give you this one. Why is it necessary that he be truly God? Because only his death could pay for all of our sins. Right. So man needs to pay the debt, but only God has the capital to do it, as it were. We need him to be truly God and truly man. And in the same way that the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, so on and so forth, these two natures do not mix. The, the, the humanity of Christ is not deified, and the deity of Christ is not lowered to manhood. They are distinct natures. So one person in two natures who executes how many offices? Three. And what are they? prophet, priest, and king, and he executes the, the role of our mediator in those offices across four particular moments in time. And we talked about the first two of these last week, and we'll talk about the other two tonight. The first two are the incarnation and the, uh, the, the crucifixion. The incarnation and the crucifixion. And tonight we're going to speak about the resurrection and the ascension. So let's start with, uh, with the, the resurrection. Jesus, though he took our sin debt on himself and paid it in full because he had no guilt of his own, because he was in and of himself perfectly holy and, and blameless, he did not <laughs> stay dead. That's what the confession means in chapter, uh, chapter 8, paragraph 4, where it says, uh, yet he saw no corruption. He did not remain dead. He truly died on our behalf, but he did not remain dead. Rather, he rose again from the dead on the third day, as we confess in the creeds, and as the Bible plainly teaches. And what's significant, and the confession brings this out, um, I'll just, I'll read this portion. Uh, he, he was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day, he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, which all, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. And a lot of you in your, in your homework last week uh, made note of and asked questions about, what does it mean that he was raised in the same body? Well, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of theological significance to that, but... It, it, for one, what it means is that his physical form is in heaven right now, at the right hand of the throne of God. And what that means is, is, is when we die and go to be with the Lord, you will actually see the very wounds by which you have been healed. And I don't know about you, but that's a profoundly powerful thing for me to consider. That I will look upon the, the, the wounds on his body, and, and, and see, that was for me. Uh, and, and we know it's the same body for a number of reasons, one of which is when he's raised from the dead, uh, one of the disciples doubts that he was raised. Who's that? Thomas. Thomas. And what does he tell Thomas to do? Touch his hands. Touch his hands. 
Feel, feel my side where, where, the, where the spear pierced. It's the same body. And, and the other significant thing about that is that means uh, that, that at the day of resurrection, when you and I will be raised, we will be raised with our same physical bodies. It will be fully you. Because remember, we are not just spirits that are trapped in a shell of our body, but your body is you. Your body is part of you. And it will be you in the fullness of who you are that gets to enjoy glory for all eternity if you're believing in the Lord Jesus. Now, it will certainly be a a, a better body than we currently have. It will not be uh, without improvements, but it will be the same body. And what all that means... um, Frankly, we don't know. Paul speaks of it in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, that which was sown in corruption, that's your physical body now, your body that decays, your body that gets older, your body that gets injured, your body that suffers all kinds of maladies, will be raised incorruptible. And, and we don't really have an analogy for what that is because we've only ever lived in a fallen world. But one day your body, the one that you have right now, will be raised incorruptible, without any of the effects, without any of the, the, the ramifications of the fall in the garden. And, and I, I, I spoke with one of you about this, and I'll share the same analogy with the class that I did with you guys. It's very difficult to describe what that will be like because we don't have a frame of reference for it. It would be like a blind man trying to describe the beauty of the sunset. He's never seen. He, he, he knows it's beautiful. We know that that will be great. But as far as a detailed explanation that we can really wrap our heads around, you need to experience it. And it's the same way with this. But we look forward to that and we're guaranteed it because Christ was raised in his same body. The fourth moment in which he's executing the office of our uh, mediator is his ascension. And that's what the the confession goes on to lay out in paragraph four. Uh, Jesus is ascended. Um. He tells the disciples in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what he's doing in his ascension. He he has been ascended into heaven and he is right now preparing a place for us to dwell with him forever. In his father's house, there are many rooms. And one of them is for you. But that's not all he's doing in his ascended state. Um, Ephesians uh, chapter four verses eight to ten. For the sake of time, we won't go there, but you can look it up. You can look that up later. It speaks of him pouring out gifts on the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, pouring out gifts through the Holy Spirit on the church. He gives you uh, he gives you pastors. He gives you uh, shepherds. He gives you evangelists. He gives you all kinds of gifts to do what? To minister his word to you, to grow you in conformity to his image. To, to show you uh, the, the ways of life and righteousness. He, he does that in his ascended state. And then most of all, uh, Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father. In his ascended state, he is praying for you at the right hand of God. And, 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 and you, why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because in his name, we also have that access to the ear of our Heavenly Father because he is ascended. 
And so when we confess that Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, we're saying a lot of things. We're saying, one, that, that he is praying for us. But also the right hand is, is that imagery of power and authority. We're saying that he is sovereignly ruling and reigning over all events in the world right now and working them specifically, personally, out for the good of his church. Um, and so the, the ascension of Christ is, is very, very important and precious in our eyes. Um, for the sake of time, we will move on now to consider the, the teaching of paragraph 5, uh, which says, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. So it says that Jesus, in going through all that, he's purchased two things for us. Two things he's purchased for his people. The first is, is that we're reconciled to God. Uh, would somebody please read for us 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Through Christ, in his ministry, God was reconciling people from every tribe and tongue across all time to himself. We were brought near to God, back into right fellowship with God through what Jesus did. That's one thing he purchased. And that's generally, I think, the first thing that comes to mind when we think, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he raise again? So that we could be brought back into right standing before God. And yes, and amen, and that is something that we should dwell on often. But there is another thing. He came not only to reconcile us, but also, it says, to, to secure an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. It's an everlasting inheritance. It's one that you can't lose. You might have disagreements. You might have separation with people in this life. And you might get reconciled to them. And then something might happen and that might fall apart again. That happens. I've got friends that I didn't talk to for years. We said we were sorry. Friends again. And something else happened. And it fell back apart. Christ did not purchase that kind of inheritance for you. He purchased an everlasting one. One that cannot fall away. The one that cannot fail. Because he has paid for the offense in Full. And that is what he's praying that, that his people would come into a greater knowledge and security of. It's one of the, one of the most precious truths about growing up in, in the Reformed tradition is that, that, that last of the five points of Calvinism, perseverance of the saints. You can't lose it. It can't be taken from you. Because 
It wasn't earned by you. It wasn't achieved by you. It was a gift from God who does not take back, from God who does not change his mind. He says in Malachi 3, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you are not consumed. You can't lose it. Now lastly, we'll look at paragraph 6 briefly on how is it that we come to be beneficiaries of this. So we've looked at, uh, you, you, could, you could almost, if you wanted to outline the confession of faith, which I admit is kind of a nerdy thing to do, but that's me. And so if you wanted to outline it, you could say chapter 8, paragraphs 1 through 3 is telling me who Jesus is. Chapter 8, paragraph 4 is telling me uh, what he did on my behalf. Chapter 8, paragraph 5 is telling me what he purchased on my behalf. So not just what he did, but what did he earn. And then paragraph 6 is telling us how do I receive those benefits. I know that they're for me, but how do I receive them? And chapter 8, paragraph 6 is going to raise a very specific question. What about those that lived before? Christ came before Christ did all these things. And the answer is, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought, that means not carried out, not accomplished, not uh, executed, was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, we're going to talk about all of those in a minute, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb, the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. So basically what they're saying, what the confession says, and what the Bible teaches is that Christ in all of his virtue, that's all of his goodness, all of his efficacy, that means all of his power, and all of his benefits were ministered in full to the Old Testament saints in three specific ways. One of the ways the confession gives us there to think about it. Just throw it out there. Who's got it? Promises, types, and sacrifices. Boom. So this is one way to try and sketch this out. So you've got the Garden of Eden, creation, beginning of time here. And it's going to go all the way to the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. Time is linear. Time is going somewhere. And we'll say right about here is the first coming and the cross. This is where our inheritance of this is secured. It's over here, the first coming, right? Uh, John 3, we'll be in this for Sunday school soon. Uh, he came not the first time to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's what he accomplishes here. Judgment day is coming, but that's not yet. The question is, how did these people who are on this side of it get these benefits? The answer the confession gives, and the Bible as well, is that they receive these benefits through promises, types, <coughs> and sacrifices. All of which point forward 
to this. In the same way, we receive these benefits through the Word of God, which is analogous to the promises. We receive it through uh, the, the types, which is, which is um, excuse me, receive it through the sacraments, which is analogous to the types, and we receive it through prayers, which is analogous to the sacrifices, right? The sacrifices that are pleasing to God are a broken and contrite heart. Um, so that's, that's the system. The difference is not what do these people get versus what do we get. The difference is what side of the equation are you on? We're both looking at the same thing. They're looking forward to something that would happen, looking backward on something that has happened. And the trade-off on this, the payoff on this, is that the whole Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus. Now, that's not new information to most of you. But, but he's saying here, the promises. What promises? All of them. Every promise you find in the Old Testament, it's about the Lord Jesus. And that's not me saying that, and that's not the Confession of Faith saying that. That's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20 all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. Every single one of them. Uh, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 14 through 7, chapter 1, where in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he begins speaking about salvation, and he quotes from Leviticus and Isaiah and 2 Samuel. He quotes from the Mosaic Covenant, he quotes from the, the Isaiah prophecies about the New Covenant, and he quotes from 2 Samuel about the Davidic Covenant. And then he says, and we, New Testament Christians, have these same promises. All of the Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus. And somebody asked what is meant by the language of type. Uh, a type is somebody in the Bible that, that executes a role, though as a fallen man, and in a not perfect way, but nonetheless ex executes a role that teaches us about what Jesus would come to do. The language of type comes from passages like Romans 5 that would speak of Adam as a type of the one to come. How is Adam a type of Christ? Well, he's the federal head of all mankind. And what he did in the garden was on our behalf and has implications directly for us. <coughs> in the same way, Christ is the federal head and representative for all who are born again from above. In the same way that all that he did counts, for our, counts on our behalf and for our sake. Um, that's, that's the language there. That's the idea. Uh, and this has massive implications for how we understand uh, many things. Um, but chiefly, it's, it's knowing that the whole Bible is about Jesus. And I will just, I'll, I'll say this. This is why when we, uh, when we talked about the, the covenant with man in chapter 7, uh, I really stressed that the fundamental relationship between the old and the new covenant is one of continuity. There's obviously discontinuity, right? Because these promises are not, is not, this, not the fullness of the word of God. They're not one-to-one -one exactly the same. Uh, sacrifices are not exactly the same as the prayers that we offer. And, and the sacraments that we have are not exactly the same as the types. But the fundamental relationship is not discontinuity, but continuity. Because the substance of all of it is Jesus. The substance is the same. The way that we benefit from it is the same. It's through faith. 
and the one to come through faith in these promises, through faith in what the types pointed to, the same thing that we look back on. And this has been the position of the Reformed Church across all branches and all denominations for as long as there's been a Reformation. Even the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says the exact same thing in chapter 8, paragraph 6 for them. This is, this is a, a broadly speaking Reformed view of the relationship between the covenants because the substance is Christ. He is what it is all built on. Well, let me pray for us. And I went over time a little bit, I'm sorry. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for the Lord Jesus. I know this is a fire hydrant of information I've spat out tonight. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help these dear young people, my friends, to reflect on the Lord Jesus, to see that he is the focal point, the, the, the epicenter, the, the grounding of all of redemptive history. It's all been about him and it always will be. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in that fact, that we would be those who would take up our Bibles and see the Lord Jesus and what he has done, what he has promised and what he has accomplished and what is yet to come in his return. I pray, Lord, that we would look forward to our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.